Magic Without Fears Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. I'm going to make you host again, just a sec. It's because you signed out and signed back in. Yeah, no problem. Sorry about that, Lon. There you go. Hmm. I'm first we have to reclaim host status and now make co-host. Boom. Okay, there we go. How's that working? Love is the law, brother. Any luck there, Lon? Love under will. <laughs> there we go. Let's just share this screen. Let's do this. Let's do. Can you see that? That's working. I can see your screen, man. Awesome. Oh, yeah. And we got yes. a better uh, Curly Mass Santa Claus than Lon Milo to cat, I don't think. <laughs> okay, I've only got a couple slides. Uh, my question is, uh, uh, I, truly, I've only got a couple slides throughout the whole thing, but I thought it might be better than just looking at me. Uh, uh, sitting here sweating in my office. Uh, do you see my thumbnail? Yes, indeed. It looks good. Okay, sorry. So you can see my thumbnail and you can see my uh, my uh, screen share of the Crowley Moss Carol, the ghost story. It's yes, very good. Yeah, it's great. So you, you can see me picking my nose. That's no. No, we can't see that. You can pick freely. You can. Yes, 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 we can. The world. Uh, oh, I was hoping you couldn't have seen that. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, everyone saw it. Okay. Uh, well, talk amongst yourselves for for 50 minutes because I planned on going on at one o'clock. Okay. We'll kill some more time. Well, I'm. Uh, I'm Frater RC. I do the Magic Without Fears podcast and uh, host HermeticMysterySchool.com and a Patreon account for Golden Dawn solo practitioners and self-initiates. 
uh, recently interviewed Frater Bacchus over here about his presentation later today, which involves the path working of the path Kof, the moon card of the tarot. Um, yeah, I got to know uh, Bacchus and, and Chris through friends in Vancouver. And uh, Chris Bennett and I actually went to our first Gnostic mass with Lon Milo Duquette here um, on the anniversary of the book of the Thelema in 2018 after an uh, Enochian working of the ether text with Lon. And uh, it was quite a powerful working in fact. It was the first time I ever did, uh, did any magic to ask for money. I'd never done that in 25 years of hermetic practice, but I did it during Lon's uh, Enochian text, text working <coughs> And the next day woke up to $1,300 in my bank account from a source that I had no knowledge or expectation received from. So that was a powerful magical experience. And then, Success is your and proof. then Chris and I went to the Gnostic mass with Lon and uh, Chris tried to smoke a joint oh. and they send him outside while they sat around drinking. And that made him rail to me about the original sacrament of Crowley's Thelemic <laughs> mass being, well, speculation. being marijuana. And, and not liquor like the Catholics or the Papists. I'm, I'm putting words, some words in his mouth just yeah. for fun here, of course. That's, that's, what, <laughs> I that's that. what I do. That's what we do. Anyway, so yeah, that's a little bit yeah. of me. Yeah, and I want to thank Troy for putting that event on. Troy, uh, Troy's here with us. Yes. Uh, uh, and Troy puts on a lot of great occult uh, uh, and Masonic events here in uh, British Columbia and it does some great work. So we want to say hats off to Troy. He was going to be part of the original uh, conference that we had planned uh, before it turned into the small gallery that we have today in this Zoom conference. And so we're sorry he's not here with us, but uh, hey, Troy. Thanks a lot for all the great work you do here in uh, British Columbia it, it, for the occult stuff. Hey, no problem. No problem. And, uh, happy to, uh, to assist in whatever way I can. Maybe um, maybe Lon can sing us a song before he goes. That's not If that's not too much, Lon, if you don't mind doing your uh, monkey dance, if you've got your guitar. There. <laughs> dance, monkey, dance. Well, I, I would have to pull out a guitar. Let me... Let me see what I can come that, up. That would be more entertaining than anything I can think any of us might want to say. Yeah, there you go. Well, that's good. And, and to the, answer the question in the chat, yes, it's I'm I'm located in New Westminster at, a, at my secret lair. Uh, and I run scolomance.ca. If you're looking for me, look up scolomance.ca. <laughs> <laughs> so, does everybody see the Lon's thing there? Is that what you can see? Yeah, there he is. All right. <laughs> Good stuff. Thanks, Lon. You're the best. <laughs> what else do I have to offer? Well, I miss you. You have everything to offer, and I miss only, you, brother. It's a shame. Only I myself. What else haven't you given? <laughs> Oh. They say that drinking and driving's a terrible curse. As felonies go, it's one. A 
of the worst. And I think it was the, the felonies we were worried about and not the sacrament <laughs> when we made you go outside to smoke a joint. <laughs> they say that drinking and driving brings misery and pain. But a guy needs a hobby to keep from going insane I love to get drunk in the car I love to get drunk in the car every night around six I slug down that sweet whiskey I love to get drunk in the car the good thing I don't live too far from my job because I drink in the car. Down the back streets I sleep and I sing as I drink. I love to get drunk in the car. No. Don't like to drink in a bar. The urinals stink in a bar. I would much rather cruise in the fresh air and booze. I don't like to drink in a bar. Cause I love to get drunk in the car. I love to get drunk in the car Every night around six I slug down that sweet whiskey I love to get drunk in the car Sometimes I light up a cigar And I smoke while I drink in the car I can spit in the street. Jesus isn't life sweet. I love to get drunk in the car. I love to get drunk in the car. I love to get drunk in the car. Every night around six, I slug down that sweet whiskey. I love to get drunk in the car Each night as I drink in the car I look up and wish on a star And give thanks to the gods I keep beating the odds Cause I love to get drunk in the car. Thank you so much, Lon. That's my favorite. I suspect you sang it because you know it's my favorite. Was that your favorite? That's always my favorite. I'm always bugging you to play it. So thank oh, you. well, I must have remembered that in one of the corners of my Medulla oblongata, coof, coof related brainstem. 
we'll, we'll call it magic. How about we just call it magic? That's Constance's favorite song too. I hate that song. <laughs> I hate that song because it used to be true. Love you, love you, Constance. Thanks for letting him uh, come play for us. That song. Hi, he, Constance. He doesn't drink anymore, so it's all right. So, is, well, there any, you are. is there anything you sing about that's as transgressive as, as that song? I, I, I can't. Maybe, maybe the summoning a demon and having him turn you into a cat. Maybe that. Oh, I like that song too. But I think that's uh, probably all the, 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 all the music in me. The sound of music in me is, has run out today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Oh, so much. you bet. Now, how is everybody holding up there in Vancouver and stuff? I wouldn't even know if I would be allowed to visit. Uh, should I should I ever want to ever go back to an airport again? I don't even know if they'd let me in. You would be allowed to be in if we could justify you coming, but you'd have to isolate for 14 days once you well, got at your house. That'd be OK. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh well, well, well. Okay, all yeah. right. Off, uh, come on up. Uh, you know, fourteen, and then and then you'd have to go back though. After that, we'd have to fly you home, and then I just. Uh, no, I, think, I, I think my the other uh, thing is the other problem is we couldn't hold an event with a bunch of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The whole thing's just totally screwed for at least another year, I think. Yeah, we're, we're and by then, by then I'll be so old. And you're keeping safe there in your in your cloistered location in remote California. Yes, so far, so far, so good. We uh, uh, we only go out uh, really twice a week uh, to to shop, and then Constance uh, uh, pretty much dresses up with masks and gloves and shields and stuff and we do our uh, our grocery shopping and that's about that's the only shopping we do actually uh, and I venture out sort of early in the morning to take a walk uh, to keep a little exercise going and then in the afternoon I ride my tricycle around the around the the neighborhood to uh, sort of get my afternoon exercise in. And I've been doing all these Zoom uh, seminars and uh, uh, classes and workshops and things like that uh, to try to keep uh, try to keep busy. And you know, I, uh, I immediately had to uh, cancel uh, three or four events. Uh, uh, that had been scheduled and that I was counting on to pay the rent uh, <laughs> early in in the year. I uh, uh, had to cancel uh, uh, Hong Kong, a series of talks in Hong Kong and a series of talks in, uh, in Austria, uh, just right off the top of my head. So anyway, it's, uh, uh, it's been a challenge. But we're old, and we really worry about you, young people. No, you're well. Don't worry about me. We're uh, 
British Columbia is mostly safe, although during the beginning of this thing back in March, of course, we were an epicenter of cases. But that was more about our provincial government being being very proactive, shutting things down quite early and doing a lot of testing. And uh, things are quite safe here. Um, it really it, it impacted my work a little bit. My, my dad broke his hip and I moved to Powell River for six months. That that oh, impacted wow. things the most. So uh, my apartment and library uh, was left dormant. We even moved with the pets. Um, it was um, it was a bit of an experience to 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 relocate somewhere. Uh, for Lucky yeah. here, I'd so many. has got some coffee. Oh. Lucky here, Hi, Connie. It's all it's all green up here, and, and she not says. But I, I want to say, well, of course, yeah, where you are, Chris. It's. I just want to say, anybody you know uh, should really kick into Lon's Patreon. He's just doing so much great work these days. He does these Facebook lives, uh, readings from his books every day. He's just doing so much uh, free, free giving stuff these days that anybody listening, man, if if you can do something for this event, please kick a couple bucks to to Lon's Patreon. Well, thank you for that plug. Yes, bless your heart. What are you um, What are you working on right now, Lon? Anything coming up, or anything uh, recently published that you'd like to promote and suggest uh, that people buy it? Well, the newest thing that uh, was published, uh, uh, I guess it was earlier this year, was uh, uh, "Allow Me to Introduce." "Allow Me to Introduce" uh, came out. That's the the newest Wiser uh, book. And uh, Son of Chicken Kabbalah uh, was quite a, uh, that came just before, a few months before that. And that was uh, uh, sort of a condensation or a, a compilation of the Kabbalah initiations, the three degree of, of Kabbalah initiations that I did in Beijing uh, the year before. And uh, so there's that, but uh, I, I'm mostly keeping my sanity by reading 15 minute to half hour sections of my books on, on Facebook every morning. Uh, so uh, I encourage anybody that can get on my Facebook page uh, at 10 a.m. every morning, every morning. I've been doing it for months and months and months. I've gone through quite a few books and I'm right now I'm on the understanding Crowley's South Tarot and I've got a new Zoom uh, uh, workshop coming up uh, on astral projection uh, so I'm keeping pretty busy that's good I also saw you post uh, recently some material from uh, a, a long lost um, uh, friend of ours um regarding Lieber Nuts. Did that ever get published? No, it never got published and it never got, uh, it never got properly uh, uh, compiled uh, either. And, uh, uh, and, I, and I don't think it, it will. It, this was in the day before the days before email. And uh, so I uh, would send regarding the, the hard copies 
of uh, snail mail, mail letters that I would get addressed to the uh, to me through the our lodge address, and uh, uh, Regardi would send me to uh, uh, live events like uh, self-published book uh, book launches from Crowley Incarnations and <laughs> things like that. And I would I would send him little snail mail uh, uh, reports back. And then he moved to uh, uh, Sedona. He moved from uh, Studio City to Sedona. And uh, uh, so we, uh, the project just sort of went, uh, put, was put on hold while he helped finish the complete Golden Dawn system of magic and other work with Falcon. And then he died. And uh, we were stuck, and I was uh, uh, hoping that uh, everything that I had sent him had been preserved. And uh, because I was working closely with Falcon Press at the time, uh, after after he died, a few months after he died, we went through his uh, his storage area that uh, he still maintained in Studio City. And I found the Lieber Nuts file folder, and nothing was in it. And uh, so, uh, and I truly can't, uh, you know, reconstruct in my mind what everything what everything was. Uh, and so, just the other day, I ran across those uh, two letters uh, <laughs> letters from him that referred to the project. And uh, uh, so I thought I'd put them up, you know, and share them while they're, they were still shareable. Well, well I, uh, I think Chris, are, are we ready for me to uh, to start? Yeah, uh, uh, Chris, uh, do, do one of you guys want to do a formal introduction over there? Absolutely. Hold on, and. So probably one of the most important uh, proponents of the Thelema philosophy these days in the world is the great law Milo Ducat. He really provides a, uh, a current going back to the, the early days of the OTO in California. He's got connections that go back that far. He's a prolific writer, uh, uh, great for the, the new student, very accessible uh, um, a writer uh, as far as understanding for people that are just kind of getting into this type of stuff and kind of the granddaddy of uh, the current Thelemic world, I would say, uh, is the great Babylon Mon Milo Duquette. And he's gonna be presenting his presentation, <laughs> A Crowley Mass Carol, A Ghost Story. Okay, well, thank you very much. And thanks for letting me be part of the, uh, the fun here. Uh, I think I see my shirt doing all sorts of psychedelic, uh, Things I got a seersucker striped shirt that's that's uh, dancing around in my not monitor here. So so I hope it's entertaining because I'm not going to change shirts here. You know I was thinking uh, and it and it truly just occurred to me this Crowley mask because it's uh, uh, I was uh, I took my Minerval. 
on November 15th, uh, 1975. And Crowley was born October uh, 12th, 1875. And it never even dawned on me uh, when I took the bus up to Dublin, California to uh, be initiated that uh, I was being initiated just a hundred years and uh, one month and four days uh, after Crowley was born. Because in my mind, uh, Crowley wasn't ancient history. He was uh, just a little, he was history like my own parents were, uh, were history. He was like World War II-ish kind of history and not, uh, uh, you know, the almost Civil War history. And uh, so I began to, to think when I, when I uh, joined the OTO 45 years ago, uh, uh, Crowley's, uh, Rigardi was talking about Crowley uh, as if he had only been dead 50 years. Uh, uh, or 25 years or something like that. And uh, uh, it just seems so odd. I feel like I'm, uh, uh, if I'd go on Antiques Roadshow and said, and had a piece of, had an antique that I made myself <laughs> being, being talked about, I just can't believe it's a uh, it's hundred years. But anyway, uh, I thought I'd do something fun uh, because uh, we've got wonderful scholars uh, with us today uh, speaking. And, you know, I don't even claim to be a big scholar or anything like that. And uh, I thought I'd do something a little, a little fun and uh, certainly something a little different and something that concerns uh, a Crowley-related project that uh, I've been working on for the last 20 years, <laughs> which may never see the light of day. So I'm gonna share some of that uh, with you uh, today for the first time. But anyway, I call this a Crowley Moss Carol, a ghost story after, uh, uh, Charles Dickens, that's why I've got the Dickens Scrooge thing up here. Crowley was dead to begin with. There's no doubt whatsoever about that. The register of his burial was signed by the clergyman, the clerk, the undertaker, and the chief mourner. Old Crow was as dead as a doornail. I would apologize to Charles Dickens for stealing and mutating his title and story opening, but Dickens is dead and I wanted to make a little point. That is, even though the name Aleister Crowley is today known all over the world, even though his writings are in print and circulated in infinitely greater numbers and translations than during his lifetime. 
And even though at least two of his experimental magical orders can now proudly boast vastly more adherents and members than at any time during his 72 short years in this dimension, even though his religious philosophy of Thelema has spread around the globe in a variety of forms and interpretations, Aleister Crowley the man, Aleister Crowley the homo sapien, Aleister Crowley the mammal, Edward Alexander Crowley the carbon-based life form is dead, dead as a doornail. Yet for we who call ourselves Thelemites, and for anyone who's intrigued by the life and career of this fascinating character, indeed, for anyone who has read the name, heard a rumor, formed an opinion, or made a judgment, no matter how incomplete, fanciful, unfair, or misinformed that judgment may be concerning any aspect of the man's life. For all of us, Aleister Crowley is very much alive. And it is we who are creating him in our own image. It is we who are breathing life into a miniature, sepia-toned superhero action figure incarnation of Aleister Crowley. Like a million separate Dr. Frankensteins screaming, alive, it's alive. We each unnaturally reanimate our own private version of Crowley's shell with the lightning bolts of our projected dreams and fears, our own expectations and aspirations, our own momentary ideals and ethics. See how he breaks the straps and rises from the table. See how he struts back and forth across the stage of our crudely imagined reconstruction of history. See him illuminated by the strobing Tesla coil of our own fleeting interpretation of the ever-shifting purpose that our vision of Crowley might play in the drama, tragedy, comedy of our own existence. Our dear brother and friend, Richard Kaczynski, who's coming up later today, right here as part of the lineup. Richard has written what I consider to be the finest and most accurate, most comprehensive biography of Crowley ever written. Perder Rabo, The Life of Aleister Crowley. Not only does Richard thoroughly deal, uh, thoroughly detail the events of Crowley's life and careers, he painstakingly goes to great lengths to place all these events in the context of the times and gives us insight 
into the lives of other important characters who were interacting with Crowley and who were influencing his thinking at any given point in his life. Richard's book, in my opinion, comes as close as humanly possible to capturing the objective reality of Crowley's life. Comes as close as humanly possible to crystallizing empirical history. It's a masterpiece. And I predict it will remain the definitive biography of Crowley for the ages. But ultimately, no biography is capable of capturing the objective reality or the spiritual significance of its subject's life because objective reality itself is uncapturable, uncapturable. In the final analysis, all biographies, even Dr. Kaczynski's, are works of fiction. And nobody's opinion of Aleister Crowley's, nobody's opinion about the true meaning of the Book of the Law, or the Law of Philema, or magic, or whether Crowley was a socialist or a fascist, or which OTO or AA is legitimate, nobody's opinion is based on objective reality. I know how I react when an evangelical Christian attempts to justify his or her embrace of their faith by referring to the Genesis creation story or Adam and Eve or Moses or even the writings of Paul. And I just want to say to them, if, if your confidence in the underlying spiritual truths of your faith is so weak that you need to prop them up by objective historical events, then I'm afraid, my friend, you're still treading on very thin ice. Can't you get a big enough spiritual kick out of the awesome, multifaceted spiritual truth behind your myths? Aleister Crowley, the man, is dead. Dead as a doornail. But Aleister Crowley, the magus, the magician, the myth, becomes more alive with every heartbeat. Now, of course, we have all sorts of evidence of the objective existence of our beloved beast. But as none of us here today ever met the man, he is, for all intent and purposes, a fictional character, a myth. Almost 20 years ago, I was contacted by an acquaintance who at the time worked for Sony Pictures. He asked if I'd be interested in writing a screenplay about Aleister Crowley. 
He said it was to be a fantasy and not a serious attempt at a biography or anything too preachy. But it should have lots of magic and feature Crowley's outrageous and liberated personal character. He made a generous offer. And as I was, as usual, <laughs> financially strapped, I agreed to begin. I thought it'd be fun to cover the period of time around 1910 to 1904 and the breakup of the Golden Dawn. That way I could have other recognizable characters like McGregor Mathers and Moena Mathers and Yates and all the Golden Dawn gang. With my friend's help, with keeping things cinematically viable and uh, a final draft professional screenwriter's computer program, I created what I thought was something that was at least worthy of the money I'd been paid. It must have been okay because the work was almost immediately optioned by a film production company who obtained the, a letter of intent from Alan Rickman to play Crowley. Can you imagine how thrilled Constance and I both were at the thought? Of course, nothing came of it. Then about 10 years later, my friend called me back and said that a British film company was interested in the property because of their funding from uh, the then uh, British Film Council. Because of that, all the principals in the company, including the screenwriters, must be British or Commonwealth citizens. But there would be no such restriction if the screenplay was adapted from a novel and they were willing to give the novel writer the screenwriter's royalty points. So, all I had to do was turn my screenplay into a novel so it could be turned into a screenplay. So, do you think I'd be so stupid as to do that? So I did. And nothing came of that either. Why am I telling you this sad story? Uh, it is. It's a sad story of the life of a struggling uh, writer, a starving writer, if you will. Because in the novel, which is published as Alistair Crowley Revolt of the Magicians, by the way, uh, oh, please buy it on Facebook or on Amazon, please. If two of you buy it, it'll have doubled sales this year. Well, I'm telling you all of this because in that novel, I treat Aleister Crowley as a fictional character, a myth. And in the opening sequence, I set the stage for a demonstration of how the myth can be more real than the fragile history it is based upon. 
And with your permission today, I'm going to read the opening chapter of Aleister Crowley, Revolt of the Magicians. The chapter is entitled Funerals and Fairy Tales. Now, before I begin, I want to, uh, uh, well, it'll be obvious that I'm writing it in the first person. And I like to have fun with anything that I do. Uh, and it occurred to me that my own uh, great uncle uh, was the private secretary to Hal Roach. Uh, you know, the Little Rascals, our gang comedies, Laurel and Hardy. Uh, and he died before I was born. And uh, uh, because of certain memories or, or images that floated through my, my infantile brain in the first couple years of my life, uh, I have reason to believe that uh, I have at least some genetic memory uh, from the incarnation of my great uncle who was named, uh, well, it doesn't matter in the, in the book here, uh, the character writing in the first person is called Milo Harland. Now, the screenplay doesn't have this opening ceremony or this opening uh, 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 material in it whatsoever. The, uh, the, the screenplay starts right where this chapter ends and you'll see how that segues uh, into it. But to set up the whole thing, I created a fictional setup using historical characters. So if you're ready, I'm going to take a sip of coffee. And I'm going to share with you something I've never shared with anybody before, except multiple film companies. Oh, by the way, there's Richard's book, Perdurabo. There's the hard copy edition of Aleister Crowley, Revolt of the Magicians. And believe it or not, once again, it is in the pipeline for another film production. I'm not holding my breath, but that's the new promotional material for it right there. <laughs> Chapter one. Funerals and Fairy Tales. The funeral had been the strangest any of us had ever attended. The tiny cemetery chapel was let only for an hour and stood almost empty. I counted only 15 mourners. They were joined by three members of the press eager to squeeze one last drop of scandalous blood from the turnip of England's most notorious black magician. Unlike the life of our departed guest of honor, the brief ceremony was quiet and respectful. Lewis Wilkerson read Hymn to Pan, my favorite of the old man's poems. Three others said a few words 
and then that was that. Predictably, the next day's headlines, newspaper headlines, couldn't have been more inaccurate or lurid. Alistair Crowley, worst man in, in the world, dies. Cremating the great beast, desecrated by black mass. It seemed hardly a fitting goodbye to a genuine holy man, the logos of the aeon, prophet of a new age. But then perhaps it was perfect. I returned to London by train with Lady Harris, who invited me to stay at her home in the city for a few days that remained before I sailed back to New York. I eagerly accepted. It is not every day a Hollywood hack is invited to unpack his toothbrush at the home of the artist wife of an influential member of parliament. I was especially keen to attend the lavish Curry Wake. Frida, Lady Harris, was to host the next evening in honor of our departed master. He did so love his curry. The hotter, the better. However, it was the guest list of this most esoteric of so uh, soirees that made my mouth water one guest in particular. It would be perhaps my one and only chance to meet and interview the legendary film director, Sir Francis Bendick. Bendick was one of only a handful of British filmmakers to resist the lure of Hollywood throughout his long and distinguished career. He was a bona fide genius who helped give birth to the industry at the turn of the century. He would go on to elevate the silent medium from the inane shorts and melodramas to serious literary theater. He wrote, he directed, he edited, and occasionally appeared in films that continually reinvented the state of the art. Most remarkably, he worked his magic throughout the bloody madness called the Great War. His propaganda efforts for king and country were irresistible, powerful, poignant, and breathtakingly honest. For this, he was knighted by George V during the exuberance of the Roaring Twenties, a time when sound was giving a voice to Bendix's genius of touching souls in a darkened theater. Only a handful of extraordinarily discreet individuals knew that Bendick was also a secret disciple of Aleister Crowley and had been since 1907. He knew more about Crowley and his work than any other living human being. That he could keep such devotion a secret from his studio, his colleagues, and three wives over 40 years was a testament to godlike magical prowess. Ill health and the need for secrecy had kept him from the funeral, but nothing short of death would keep him from Lady Harris's Crowley's Curry Wake. Bendick and I had two things in common. We were both ceremonial magicians, 
and we were both in the movie business. He at the end of his glorious and historic career and I at the beginning of mine. Meeting him and having a chance to pick his brain was the reason I asked the studio for a month off to research. He was the reason I traveled at my own expense to dreary old England in the damp December of 1947. And he and my own ambition to produce a proper movie about Aleister Crowley, the man I considered the most important, the most colorful, and the most misunderstood holy man of the 20th century. If all went well, Sir Francis Bendick would help me write it. The Harris townhome was located at number three Devonshire Terrace, uh, Marylebone Street. I'll spell that for you M A R Y L E B O N. Marylebone High Street and was a testament in stone to the eccentric nature of its owner's marriage. Its exterior was modest and understated, a fitting facade for a Labour Party MP. The interior was altogether different. The rooms were large and curiously warm, furnished as if by order of the MGM prop department with antique cliché perfection. The walls, however, were bereft of the oversized stodgy portraits of ancient ancestors and horses one might expect to find in such homes. Instead, they were festooned with Lady Harris's abstract paintings of mystical and Masonic themes, a few of which I confess, I found to be nothing short of disturbing. I was billeted in a guest room large enough to swallow my entire bungalow back in Hollywood. I found the ancient canopied bed too soft to sleep in, so I spent a chilly and restless night stretched out on two chairs that I pushed near the fire. Yes, the bedrooms each had a cold burning fireplace. The next morning, I was called downstairs to breakfast only to discover that I was conspicuously underdressed. As self-conscious, I self-consciously scooped a pile of scrambled eggs upon my plate and hoped that no one would mention the fact that I was not wearing a tie. I completely panicked when Lady Harris announced, we'll be dressing for dinner, uh, we'll be dressing for tonight's dinner. By that I understood evening wear. And if I wasn't properly attired for a buffet breakfast, then I certainly wasn't likely to have white tie and tails in my Gladstone weekend bag. Over my grilled tomatoes and beans, I confess my lack of a wardrobe uh, and threw myself upon the mercy of Lady Harris. She was not particularly amused or upset. You're about Percy's size. I'm, I'm sure we can find you something, was her only comment. After breakfast, she put me in the care of a gentleman I can only assume was Lord Harris's valet and spent the remainder of the daylight hours trying 
on an endless array of his lordship's trousers, shirts, ties, stockings, braces, and shoes. What di didn't fit was duly and truly altered. By the time I had secured an entire ensemble, I barely had time to bathe before the other guests and Sir Francis arrived. It was 5 p.m. and the Harris house smelled like an Indian restaurant. I was famished. I had eaten nothing since breakfast. I was still being fitted for my trousers when lunch was served. Frida, now that I was dressed properly, I felt I, I felt comfortable calling her Frida, introduced me to the guests as they arrived and obligingly rattled off a breathless summary of each one's life and their connection with Crowley. This is Captain, oh, excuse me, Major General Fuller. You and Old Crow had a bit of falling out before the wars, didn't you, dear? Doesn't matter now. We all did sooner or later. General Fuller edited and contributed to Crowley's magazine, the Equinox for the time. He wrote that glowing pay in the star in the West. Oh yes, and that was then that marvelous treasure house of images. Quite a military man too, aren't you, Charles? Invented that dreadful concept of the, the nasties would end up calling blitzkrieg and your ponderous tank warfare books and all that unpleasantness. Hitler just loved you before the war, didn't he, darling? The only Englishman he ever praised in public. Invited you to his birthday party, as I recall. Thank God you didn't go, old chum. You are so sweet to come tonight. Alistair did love you. you. I know he did. She went on like that about everybody she introduced. She had a photographic memory and a biting wit. She told the guests remarkably little about me, however. That is, until Sir Francis arrived. After greeting the old man with a kiss, she grabbed my arm like a proud mother and introduced me to him. Francis, I would like you to meet Mr. Milo Harland, who has traveled all the way from Hollywood. He's a ninth degree member of Agape Lodge OTO and is in the movie business. He attended the master's funeral yesterday and he's staying with us for a few days more. He's... Bendik interrupted her. Your wife, sir, is she well? When is she due? The old man blurted out the words without shaking my hand. It was obvious he was hard of hearing. He shouted as if everyone in the room was also deaf. His question surprised me. How on earth did he know Jean was pregnant? We hadn't even told our family and friends yet. Uh, yes, sir, uh, very well indeed. Uh, the baby is due in July. I don't know why, but I took the... I took curious pleasure in sharing this information with him. Do you know shorthand? Was his next question. At first, I didn't quite know what he meant by the word shorthand. After all, in this crowd, shorthand might be an exotic code for some, an esoteric code for some exotic 
act of sexual magic. Uh, shorthand, I awkwardly responded. Yes, boy, shorthand. Do you know shorthand? Are you fast? He bellowed. Then I realized that he was actually talking about shorthand dictation, a skill which I mastered years ago when I worked for Hal Roach. Why, yes, sir, as fast as you can talk. Good, you'll need to be fast, was his response. Frida, where can this young man and I be alone for a day or so? I couldn't believe my ears. I couldn't believe what was happening. It was as if he were reading my mind. I had barely spoken two words to the man, hadn't even asked him for an interview, and now he was arranging it all. It was a dream come true. You could use the library, Francis. Lady Harris seemed as surprised as I as the old man's request. It's quite warm and comfortable. We'll settle you two in right after dinner. Dinner, I thought. Thank the gods, I was nearly fainting from hunger. No time for dinner, old dear, he shouted. I plan on dying on Friday. The boy and I can't wait. Now, there's an announcement you don't hear every day. I, of course, thought he was joking. And even had I taken his words seriously, the gravity of the statement was completely buried by my hunger. I panicked at the thought that I might actually miss the spicy dinner I smelled cooking all day. The other guests took the announcement of his prophesied death with a stunned silence. Harris started to speak, but the old man shut her up with a slight elevation of his left eyebrow. A moment later, we were alone in the library. Sir Francis Bendick and my empty stomach. He pulled his chair directly opposite mine and studied, studied me for what seemed an eternity. I tried to study him right back. He didn't look well. In fact, it appeared that the stiff texture of his formal attire was a suit of armor, an elegant black and white exoskeleton protecting a brilliant yet frail life form inside. Oddly enough, at the same time, I'd never been in the presence of anyone who seemed more alive and vibrant. The room around him seemed softly illuminated by warm, indirect lighting that radiated from every pore of his exposed skin. I forgot my hunger. I felt satisfied and nourished by this man's presence, fed on his light. This was magic, I thought, real magic. Magic isn't something you do, it's something you are. He ignored my thought and began to speak. You think you want to produce a movie about Aleister Crowley, don't you? I started to answer, but he already knew the answer and so continued. I believe you are sincere. I believe you are talented. I believe you can do it. I know for a fact, however, if you try to produce the film you think you want, 
to make, your project will fail miserably. You will fail miserably. The world is not ready for this story, and it certainly cannot be told the way you think you want to tell it. Listen to me, I will be dead within the week. The handful of disciples in that dining room out there will grow old and die. Before the cock crows thrice, most of them will deny the master and try to get on with their lives. Alistair Crowley in his work will be nearly forgotten for the next 20 years or so. There's nothing you or I can do about it. I was stunned. I was angry. These are the words of a, a depressed and bitter old man. I wasn't going to let this old magician with no future tell me about mine. I wasn't going to tell him so, but that's what I was thinking. He paused for a moment, sat back in his chair. I squirmed a little when I realized he had heard my thoughts. I know how the future will unfold. Crowley and I discussed it in great length, discussed you in great length a fortnight ago. Hear me, Milo Harland. You will write a screenplay, a marvelous work, and I will help you write it tonight and tomorrow and tomorrow night, I will help you. It will be made into a feature film. It will be a modest financial success for nearly everyone involved in the project. But more importantly, it will endure. It will succeed in introducing the world to Aleister Crowley and the master he became. Succeed in capturing the spiritual imagination of those in every generation to follow, those who are ready to hear it. It will become the wonder story of a new era of human consciousness. He sat back in his chair and smiled most warmly. However, neither you nor I will see the film made, at least not in our present incarnations. That did it. I didn't care if this old fart could read my mind. I didn't care if he glowed like a Roman candle. He's barking mad. I only hoped I could at least scrape together a usable interview out of the old fool before he dropped dead. I cleared my throat and tried to sound like a movie producer. <clears throat> yes, well, uh, be that as it may, Sir Francis, I need to ask you a few questions about Crowley's life to help me get some facts straight. I want my work to be historically accurate as possible. You haven't heard a word I said, Brother Harland. This is the first time he addressed me as brother. 
as we were both ninth degree initiates of the Sovereign Sanctuary of the Gnosis of Crowley's Magical Fraternity, Ordo Templi Orientis. I was now obliged by magical oaths too terrible to repeat, to respect his entreaty and at least hear him out. This story is bigger than the life of just one man. Even a man as big and as great as Aleister Crowley. This story can't be told as a history because truth cannot be revealed in history. Objective reality is a very small reality. This story spans multiple lives and dimensions and centuries. It has to be told as a fairy tale, a myth, because fairy tales and myths are truer than history, truer than objective reality. They endure, they outlive history. He leaned forward and placed his hand on my knee and gently patted it. Please, Brother Harland, fetch your pad and pencil and allow me to tell you a fairy tale. And that's the end of chapter one. <laughs> and I think that's the end of my end of my talk. I'll throw it open to anybody that wants to chat for another 15 minutes or so. Wow, Lon, that was really great. Um, yeah, it it sounds like it actually happened. That uh, it's really amazing. Uh, some some thoughts on the ver on the veracity of what you were just telling us. Who from me? <laughs> yes. Yeah. I'm, uh, yeah. Yeah. You could. Yeah. This okay. is all a work of fiction. But yeah. It's oh yeah. It's a it's a work of fiction and a fairy tale. Uh, and uh, but uh, we. Uh, what'll happen is Milo will start dict uh, or uh, uh, Sir Francis will start dictating uh, the screenplay and the blocking and uh, you know the whole uh, uh, complete with stage directions and, and fade ins and fade outs and stuff of uh, of uh, uh, of Crowley uh, his life. But there's also flashbacks to Abramelin, uh, Abramelin the mage, and Abraham the Jew. Uh, there's uh, uh, the I, I take the magical duel between McGregor Mathers and Crowley to to uh, uh, other <laughs> wonderful other other dimensions. I bring in uh, other characters uh, such as Annie Horniman and Francis Farr and Yates and and uh, uh, or Florence Farr uh, and uh, I even throw in uh, uh, I take the liberty of throwing in Bram Stoker <laughs> and uh, uh, the, the the wonderful uh, uh, scenes worthy of uh, of uh, almost slapstick. Uh, uh, interest uh, is uh, Crowley crashing into the 
the Golden Dawn uh, uh, temple and taking it over with Mathers dressed in Highland gear. But anyway, it's uh, it's a lot of fun, and uh, uh, it goes right up till the time uh, just past Crowley's marriage, uh, when he and Rose are. Uh, uh, spending the night in the king's chamber of the Great Pyramid. And uh, so it's setting up for a sequel, too. So, uh, uh, Francis Bendick is, uh, is one of the characters that Crowley wrote as. If you'll look in the Equinox, there's, there's poems or articles written by Francis Bendick. Uh, the, the address and the, the thing about Harris and the details of the funeral and everything else are more or less taken from contemporary uh, uh, re reports. And uh, I tried to uh, uh, capture, you know, my own, my own understanding and, and opinion of the characters. So, but uh, uh, it makes no pretense of being uh, uh, anything but uh, uh, an homage to the the mythological character of Aleister Crowley. Uh, when I first started this, you know, I just love the Indiana Jones movies, especially the the uh, Lost Ark and the, the Holy Grail uh, movies. And I just I, and I love the character, and I love. Uh, how uh, uh, Harrison Ford brought them to life and everything else. And I was thinking to myself, wouldn't we just, wouldn't we just love it if somebody uh, on, a, on a PBS documentary or something said, and you know, Indiana, there was a real Indiana Jones and he was based on this this real life character, this adventurous uh, uh, professor character. Now, think about it. Would that have made us appreciate the fictional character Indiana Jones so much more if we thought, shit, man, this is, this is based on a real guy. I got to find out more about the real guy. And that's sort of what, where I was coming from. Wouldn't it be nice to fire in a, in a very entertaining and uh, dramatic way, fire the imaginations of, of people that wouldn't otherwise give Crowley in his life and his works a second thought. And uh, then I sort of just all of my, own internal objections to uh, spending any creative time on an effort like this just sort of evaporated. I said, shit, yes. Uh, and, and I do put Crowley in a, uh, in what I feel is a, is a fair, uh, but positive light. And I don't try to uh, uh, skate over his, uh, uh, his weirdness in any way. As a matter of fact, there's wonderful scenes uh, 
of his weirdness and you love him for his weirdness, which I think we all, we all, uh, or most of us love him for most of his weirdnesses. Uh, but anyway, so that's that. And I thought it'd be fun to share that with you today. Well, what do you think of, uh, of the strange angel in that regard? You know, it's kind of like a similar thing, but uh, on Jack Parsons and we have, of course, Aleister Crowley having a lunch with uh, Parsons in a cafe in his astral form, which kind of blew it for me. But what do you think of it? Oh, I haven't seen it. And uh, we don't, uh, we're poor folk. We don't even have cable or anything like that. Uh, but uh, 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 theoretically, or uh, I, I'm not opposed to that uh, uh, generally because of the, the same thing I just, I just got through saying. Uh, and, you know, if this would turn into a miniseries, I'm sure it'd go to shit right in front of me. Not only that, but even if it went into a film, uh, uh, you know, it, I'm, I fully expect it to go to shit right in front of me too. But at least I gave it my best, <laughs> my, my best shot. And uh, if it was uh, be produced uh, pretty much the way I've laid it out here, I, I think all of us would would sort of get a uh, get a wonderful kick out of it. Uh, and uh, so I, you know, I've heard wonderful things about Strange Angel, and I've heard uh, uh, not so wonderful things about it. But I tell you, if if it made anybody. Uh, Oh, also, uh, along the lines of strange angels, have you seen the Jack Parsons drunk history? That's great. I saw that. That's pretty funny. Uh, um, you know, strange angels definitely worth a watch. I thought the first season was great. I saw it just after reading Martin Starr's excellent The Unknown God, which is uh, up there in my top kind of uh, historical books on the whole scene. Um, and uh, I thought, I thought he kind of, you know stuck to kind of some of the parts of that and the, the flavor of it pretty good combined with the Jack Parsons story. So I, I definitely recommend uh, checking it out. Um, I guess we should start getting ready for our next presenter. Also. Oh, go ahead, Lon, go ahead. Oh. Oh no, I'm, I'm, I'm ready. Okay. Uh, and I've our had the door closed here and it's 90 degrees. Nice. Our next presenter is the incredible Richard Kaczynski, uh, the probably the foremost OTO Crowley historian in the world. And he's gonna be talking about Aleister Crowley. Wait, 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 he doesn't. Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature, as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.com co.uk that's hermetic science enterprises.co.uk and as a lot of you know i've uh, talked with 
the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now, hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk.